The images of Western journalists clad in orange jumpsuits being murdered by fighters claiming holy war are horrific and invoke revulsion. But what effect are these targeted attacks having on those trying to cover the Middle East? This Radio New Zealand Insight looks at how groups like the so-called Islamic State are changing the nature of journalism in the region. It's the moment before the eruption. You hear it. You hear the tension. You can almost, with time, stand with your back to it and, by hearing just a small sound, know that it's all about to explode. The clashes and violence that happen inside Dome of the Rock really kind of depend, the nature of them depends on how much tension has risen in Jerusalem. Uh, oftentimes they involve some arrests by Israeli police, arresting Palestinians, um, the use of um, tear gas and other kind of what they call crowd dispersal uh, weapons. This is Damascus Gate, one of the entrances to Jerusalem's old city. The old city has been, and in a way is still, the place where so many segments of society in this land still exist, um, from the Armenian quarter to the Christian quarter to the Muslim quarter and the Jewish quarter. My name is Irene Nasser. This freelance television producer is going to be our guide for this insight as I, Kim Vanell, explore the dangers journalists face around the world. We'll talk about freedom of the press. There's a bigger move generally against freedom of expression, which is quite terrifying. How the dangers facing journalists are changing. And good day from New York. We're coming on the air, sadly, to report video evidence that sh seems to show Another American has been beheaded by the radical ISIS militants. And look at whether what's happening behind the scenes is enough to keep journalists safe. Part of killing journalists is part of the strategy. It's part of a war strategy. It terrorizes people. It makes governments overreact. And so you can start to see how there are two wars going on. There's the real on-the-ground war there's the rhetorical war. But I want to start back in Jerusalem at Damascus Gate. Picture a huge, dusty red fortress. It's busy. There are thousands of people who go in and out every day. The Palestinians are going to the Dome of the Rock, an Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the holiest sites in Islam. The Jews are going to the Wailing Wall, which is pretty much in the same place, and which is very important to them because they say it's the last remaining part of the Second Temple. So, as you can imagine, there is, and always has been, a lot of tension surrounding this place. Irene Nasser has seen things go bad here many times. You know, there's the physical violence, there is... Uh, rubber-coated steel bullets, tear gas canisters, live ammunition, I mean, it could be anything. While the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is centuries old, in a dangerous cycle of violence, tensions are once again rising. 
Another deadly attack. The victims randomly chosen, but part of a dangerous pattern of violence here that is escalating by the day. Police say a Palestinian man attempted to run over a group of Israelis outside the Gush Etzion settlement block in the West Bank. To find out what this means for journalists, Irene and I drove to Ramallah, the Palestinian city in the West Bank. So what's this? Uh, this is road 443. It's a segregated road uh, between Palestinians and Israelis. And on our right and on our left is the separation wall. Um, here it looks a little bit differently. In some sections of the wall, they make it look um, more appealing to the eye, so it doesn't seem as the harsh concrete uh, that is present in other places. So we've just crossed through from the Israeli side through to the West Bank, gone to a checkpoint. And you really do get the feeling almost immediately that you've gone from a first world country to a third world country in an instant. Inside the West Bank, Palestinians are under Israeli military occupation, which means soldiers can and do come in at any time. For journalists, and particularly Palestinian journalists, like photographer Ahmed Douglas, that makes life very difficult. The Israeli army doesn't really care whether you're a Palestinian or not, or a photographer or press or anything. They can either way attack you or arrest you, break your equipment. If you're a journalist in Israel, you have to get permission to work from the government press office. And if you're Palestinian, it's even harder. It's very difficult to go and work and photograph or interview people in Jerusalem, or more so, even inside the Dome of the Rock compound, because it all depends on a permit. If you have a West Bank Palestinian ID, you have to get a permit. And in that case, the permit is for a specific time that restricts you to a time frame. So it's very restrictive. Driving back through to Israel, we're stopped at an Israeli-controlled checkpoint. The restrictions of living and working as a journalist here are hard to ignore. And while there are physical dangers to working in Israel and the Palestinian territories, it's what's happening in countries surrounding Israel that's really changing the game. The ISIS video is simply too horrific to show. The man being executed by beheading is James Foley, a freelance journalist kidnapped in northwest Syria on November 22, 2012, Thanksgiving Day. My biggest, one of my biggest fears, and I think it's a big fear of any journalist in the work in the region, is some group kidnaps you. They do it for a little bit of money. They don't care who pays the ransom. ICE, a group like ICE will step in and say, we will give you X amount of money for this guy. They're like, fine, you take him. 
and it's not like you know uh, you know my parents might not be able to afford to pay the ransom probably can't afford to pay the ransom so ISIL offer more money so they sell me to ISIL and then look what happens after that Imran Khan started out 15 years ago working for the BBC and has since then spent most of his time almost exclusively in the Middle East seven years ago he moved to Al Jazeera his home in Doha is filled with art from his travels this this is one of my favorite pieces of art this is an Iraqi artist called Qasim Sabti Qasim was the um, head of the Baghdad School of Art, and in, uh, I think, 2004, they, the Americans bombed it by mistake. Every piece tells another story. Then the other favourite that I have is this. This is, um, we were in Libya during the war, and at the time, um, all of the street artists were only allowed to paint pictures of Gaddafi and uh, pictures of um, how great Libya was and the brother leader and all of this. So there was this tradition of street art, uh, but it was all about Gaddafi. After the, the revolution, um, people were free and they could paint whatever they wanted. Imran Khan's decision to become a journalist began with a moment that everyone can remember. This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. But September 11 was just part of a much bigger strategy, which is still playing out today. There was a group called Al-Qaeda in Iraq who had um, been formed by a Jordanian guy called Abu Musa al-Zarqawi. And he was ruthless. Um, Al-Qaeda for all of the... Uh, Al-Qaeda wanted spectaculars, hence 9-11, hence, like, the bombings in Spain and in Turkey and all of this. They wanted big showcase. Um, and these were, uh, but for Abu Musab al-Zawqawi, that wasn't enough. He wanted chaos, because he felt that out of chaos, they would be able to rise as a group and be able to take over. And from there, under the leadership of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the Islamic State was born. The terror spreading across Syria and Iraq has spurred world leaders to act, but Imran Khan says it's a difficult road ahead. I think we're witnessing, unless we can hold Iraq together, unless, and when I say we, I mean the Arab world and the Western world together, I think we're going to, we will, we are witnessing the birth of a new Middle East. That new Middle East is posing new challenges for journalists committed to impartial reporting. This is Professor Maria Amorian. And unfortunately, people can't go in and cover ISIS without an agreement by ISIS. People can't go in and cover Boko Haram without signing on the dotted line. I will not cross this line. Maria says embeds, which is when journalists travel with armies or with armed groups, means impartial reporting can be difficult. She also says few journalists are willing to go to Syria or Iraq now and has written a book about what happens when the reporting stops. I looked at 11 case studies in which responsible journalism was either present or absent. And when it is completely absent and black hole, that's when the most horrific human rights abuses can occur. When it is present, it helps to shape people's understandings and take it out of the simplistic terms that the warring parties, especially extremists, would like 
for people to think in, the black and white, the good guys and bad guys, the good versus evil. It also means news organisations are using more and more content provided by activists and extremist groups themselves. These images uploaded to a social website purport to show the aftermath of a government attack on rebel forces near the town of Hretan in northern Syria. The town lies on the outskirts of Aleppo, where the two sides have been engaged in a vicious battle for control. Amateur videos posted online purport to show Islamic State militants and Syrian regime forces. This footage, posted on a social media website, purports to show rebels targeting government forces in Syria. That saturation is having a knock-on effect, especially for freelancers. Tina Carr is the director of the Rory Peck Trust, a not-for-profit supporting freelance journalists in conflict zones. She says before mobile phones and internet everywhere, freelancers had an advantage. Um, one of the things that acted in a funny way as a kind of protection for journalists, and especially for freelance journalists who work on their own, was the way they could get in close to a story and say, look, if you want your story to be told, you better let me tell it. And I think the big difference now is nobody needs to wait for individual journalists or organisations to tell the stories because there are so many other platforms for people to get their stories out, as we're finding. But when you're paid by the story, as Irene Nasser explains, there can be a downside too. I know that as a freelancer, personally, I am probably more likely to take risks than someone who is not freelance with a network. Um, it is a matter of having access to a story. And the more access you have, um, the better the better you are able to show what you can do. The, it's, it's almost kind of, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of ridiculous in a way because it's as if you are constantly trying to prove something. Regardless of network affiliation, it's almost always Western journalists making headlines. But in reality, it's local fixers, producers, reporters and camera operators most often in the firing line. This just into CNN, some gruesome video. One of the terrorists in Iraq has posted three extraordinary videos, extraordinary and awful, to a Facebook page showing the interrogation of several captured men. Reporters Without Borders says 120 journalists were kidnapped in 2014 and at least 40 are still being held. Most of them are locals. Tina Carr knows the risks they take. Not only do they face risks every single day to report on what they're reporting on and trying to get the stories out. If international, and you probably know this already, if international news organisations come in and they help them with fixes and so on, they're very often considered as betraying their country by helping, you know, the, the foreign news organisations. And so the, the news organisation gets out and the fixer is left and very often facing threats. Irene Nasser says there's a psychological toll too, being left behind after the international correspondent heads back home. I think it's not just that I stay, it's when I go other places. The place I come back to is this one. I don't come back to a country which is relatively not experiencing conflict. I come back to here, which is a place that is violent both in 
the everyday life and the, the events that happen, but violent also visually in the structures that you see every day, in the way people interact with each other, in the presence of guns and the presence of a lot of violence. And, and that's hard, because it's almost like you have nowhere to escape to. It's the conviction that freedom of the press matters and that the world must know what's going on that drives many of those journalists. And now, like never before, that conviction is being tested. Imagine a world where reality is distorted. Imagine being kept in the dark about major global events. Imagine being silenced when speaking out could save your life. I don't know where to go. We don't know where to go to get any food. You've just imagined a world where journalists are not free to report the facts. The Free Al Jazeera staff campaign took off globally after four journalists were imprisoned in Egypt. They were accused of acting as mouthpieces for the banned Muslim Brotherhood. All of them denied the claim. My name is uh, Abdullah Shami. Abdullah Al Shami is 26 years old and Egyptian. I used to work for Al Jazeera Arabic in Nigeria as um, the uh, reporter for West Africa. That was until his home country began to become politically unstable for the second time in three years. I was asked by my uh, channel to go and cover up the events there. Hi, Jeff. Look, I'm having trouble hearing you because the cheering from the square behind me is... He had no idea that within weeks of arriving, his own world would be turned upside down too. Abdullah arrived back to his home country in 2013, although the revolution had actually started two years earlier when Egyptians who'd been living under a dictatorship demanded their president resign. And there is some significant breaking news in Egypt at this hour. The office of the presidency there has just announced that President Hosni Mubarak has stepped down. Two years later, the Muslim Brotherhood's Mohamed Morsi was elected. A year into his term, Mohamed Morsi was ousted too. In the coming hour, the army is likely to issue a statement. It's taken over Egyptian state television. And what the army is going to say, if it's going to stay true to its roadmap, is that it is dissolving the parliament. It is instituting an interim council. People here talking about some kind of technocratic government. And at the same time, it's going to call for fresh presidential and parliamentary elections within the year. Now, an advisor to the Egyptian president, Morsi, has said that this amounts to a military coup. And that's when Abdullah al-Shami arrived at the Rabah Mosque in Cairo. Well, there, there was that intention really to, to kill, not to disperse. That's how I'll describe it as a journalist. Uh, just first of all, are you, are you in a safe place to talk to us? Protesters who supported the Muslim Brotherhood, that's the supporters of Morsi, were hiding inside the mosque away from security forces. Uh, it was about 6 o'clock in the morning when uh, people started spotting uh, armored vehicles, uh, you know, security personnel, uh, even uh, helicopters in the sky. Police stormed the compound. Human Rights Watch says that over the course of that one day, at least a thousand people were killed. And uh, th uh, there was no way for people to leave 
unless they got detained or uh, killed. Um, that that was for almost 15 hours from six o'clock in the morning till about nine o'clock in the evening. Uh, and during uh, during that day, I, I myself counted almost 300 bodies. Abdullah Al Shami was eager to tell the world what he had seen, but when he went to leave, he was stopped. So the police, uh, the army officer took my passport, started looking through it, and, well, it's, it's obvious that, you, you know, as a journalist, you'll have a lot of visas, stamps inside your passport. So he started looking at, uh, at it, and, you know, and, 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 and mocking, uh, you know, whatever he thought I was doing. He was like, oh, you travel a lot. You must be a spy. What followed was 10 months in detention. He was shunted between prisons, ending up in a maximum security compound. Every 45 days, a month and a half, we just get, uh, you know, um, detention renewal, just like that. Nobody listens to you. There was no any kind of, you know, trial, no, even no, no any investigation, you know, was taking place. So that's why I decided to start the hunger strike in order to get my voice heard. The video Abdullah al-Shami released in prison, which was leaked to the media, shows a gaunt and listless man with black eyes and skeletal features. This is... Uh, a record for the history and for uh, the sake of uh, documenting my state. The hunger, he says, was compounded by the seemingly endless hours. When I had the chance to get a pen, you know, I would write things and then in the morning I'll try and hide them. So you know, when they came you know, regularly to check that, you know, there, there, was, there was that notion that I was in contact with the outside world. Eventually, Abdullah al-Shami was released, having never been charged. As covering the world's hotspots becomes more and more dangerous for journalists, what drives them to continue with their jobs? It sounds incredibly noble. Um, it probably isn't. Um, I do think we make a difference. I actually believe that if we weren't doing it, if there weren't people willing to fund people like me to go and do it, it probably wouldn't happen. We live in a world where nobody really cares about the intricacies, the details of you know politics. People care about celebrity and people care about fashion and music and art and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and it's only when it's headline grabbing that people kind of pay attention. That's like ISIL and beheadings and like the burning of a pilot, uh, a Jovanian pilot. But these people have to live there. And if they can live through that, then I can show up and I can report. Just finally, a lot of, you kind of mentioned it earlier, but a lot of people who haven't gone through what you've gone through would say, I'm done. I don't want to do that anymore. No, it's not, not worth it. <laughs> not me. But, well, definitely a journalist is a journalist. I mean, well, if, 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 if the story comes up, I run for it. I feel like when I am in the field and I am witnessing what is in front of me, I feel like the luckiest person in the world, despite the fact that it must be, might be horrific, despite the fact that it might be heartbreaking and hard um, and sometimes gruesome and violent, I still feel lucky to be able to witness this moment.
I'm Kim Vanell, and that's all for this edition of Insight. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight.